This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. In today's episode, is genomic science too white? I've got a striking story for you of the shocks you can get when you take a genetic ancestry test. And the problems are not in your DNA. They are in the science. Oh, man. So... (laughs) I want you to meet Marguerite Dubai. Oh, my gosh. So... She's an American-Palestinian cartoonist and illustrator living in Brooklyn, New York. And when she started to draw, well, it kind of helped her start making sense of the world. When I was younger... All I wanted to do was draw anthropomorphic fantasy characters who were, you know, exploring some fantasy world, adventuring, trying to figure out the meaning of war. Yeah, you might say she was an intense kid. I so relate to that. I'm not even joking. That was my first comic when I was like, you know, 13 or 14. Trying to figure uh, out the meaning of war. Yes. That, hardcore. Like, that was the plot. It was really hardcore. While Marguerite was trying to figure out the world, her family's stories were helping her figure out herself. My family, so my my Palestinian side of the family, were originally from Ramallah. They came to the U.S. in the 60s after the 1967 war. And that's where my father met my mother. Uh, My mother is mostly of British and Scottish ancestry. And uh, they met in D.C. and the rest is history. And Marguerite was born. She grew up in San Francisco, but she understood a whole lot about the deep heritage and history of her family. I lived with a lot of my extended family on my father's side, and and they constantly, I mean, I think it's a very Palestinian thing to to talk about loss, I'm sorry to say, Palestine, and, and talk about what was lost and talk about how it was and things like that. So I heard very much about where we were from and how it was there and everything. And there is actually a book that is a genealogical history of Ramallah. So my family, needless to say, is in this book. This is actually a book that was done maybe 30 years ago. There's actually a recent effort to update the book. So this is kind of a big thing, and it's very much a Palestinian thing to try to keep memory alive. It's a need to assure that, hey, you know, we exist, we've had this, we have this entire history, we're going to write it somewhere, we're going to, you know, put it somewhere. I wish I could have seen Palestine back in the day, honestly, (laughs) because like it just, it sounds really chill and nice. I'd like to go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Marguerite thought she had a pretty clear idea about her ancestry, but then she spat into a test tube. Well, first her half-brother on her father's side spat into a test tube. He decided on a whim to take a DNA test. And he got the results back and he was just like, yeah, you might want to take a look at these results. These are kind of weird. Well, weird in an intriguing kind of way. Our understanding was that from my dad's side, we were fully half Palestinian, half Arab. But these results, they suggested something different. So, so we, we were just like, what? So Marguerite decided to do an ancestry test too. This was back in 2016. Well, I went through 23andMe, did the old spit in a tube, 
and and uh, she sent it off to the company 23andMe, and little did she know, even more surprises would be in store for her. So the saliva gets to our partner lab, and the DNA is extracted from that. And my name is Joanna Mountain, and I'm senior director of research at 23andMe. And previously at Stanford, where Joanna also did her PhD and specialised in human evolutionary genetics. So when customers sign on with the genetic testing and analysis company 23andMe, which is headquartered in Silicon Valley, here's what happens to their spit sample. Around a half a million positions in the DNA are analysed, and we get the genetic variants at those half a million positions. Genetic variant. Now, that just means some kind of unique variation in your genome's DNA sequence. So then 23andMe use an automated computerised process to peer at different stretches or windows of your DNA. And then they compare those to the genomes of a reference group made up of individuals from different populations globally. Now, what ethnicities are present or missing from that reference group? That's key as you'll hear later. And we look at each one of these little windows and we say, to which people is this individual most genetically similar? And we continue as we stroll along the genome looking and saying, well, at this point, this genome looks very similar to people from, say, Iberia. And then we get a little further down and, wow, it looks similar to people from Ghana. And even further down, it looks similar to people from Ireland. So there's a method we have that classifies each little patch of the genome by saying, is this more similar to people from Ireland or from France? And then the algorithm says, okay, it gives a probability that it's from Ireland and a probability that it's from France, and whichever is highest is the winner there. So it's then we patch it all together and come up with percentages, you know, for each individual. So it's a multi-step process, and that's what we present to the customer. Okay, so back to Marguerite, ready and waiting for the results from 23andMe to land in her inbox. And, you know, sure enough, I got the, I got the, the results back. And some of them made sense. You know, I knew enough about my mother's side of the family. It told me that, okay, half of me is British and Scottish. Okay, cool, makes sense. But what came next made very little sense to her. Other half, what is going on? 35% um, Italian, it said. 35% Italian, and then the rest was Arab. Um, specifically, oh, what did it say? I think specifically it said Western Asian or something. They actually tried to give me a breakdown of what regions of Italy it came from, but they couldn't actually detect where in Italy it came from at all. Where did all um, that Italian come from? And actually, I think that right. was a sweet coincidence. Is it true that your husband is Italian? My husband is Italian. <laughs> and I did actually, when I got that test, I did ask him, like, do I even look Italian? And he was just like, no. <laughs> so suddenly, just like that, Marguerite was possibly 30% Italian and only 15% Western Asian and North African. And can a test like this even detect that she is Palestinian heritage? Well, wait until you hear what happened when 23andMe updated her results two years later. It's fairly incredible. First, though, how genetically different are we really? Well, at the genome scale, there are over 3 billion nucleotides that make up our, our genome. 
So my name is Sarah Tishkoff, and I'm a professor of genetics and biology at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's hugely influential. Sarah and colleagues published the first paper to support the out-of-Africa hypothesis of human migration using analysis of the DNA inside our cells' nuclei and has conducted the largest studies of genetic variation in African populations. We differ at about, I would say, less than 0.1% of the genome. So that's a relatively small amount of difference. To give you an idea, if we compare the human genome to a chimp genome, it differs at about 1.5% of the genome. Less than 0.1%. And yet, what is contained within that variation, that difference? The majority of variation is not functional. And in fact, that variation is very useful for making inferences about evolutionary history about population history, demographic history, tracing migration events, and so on. The part of the genome that actually is influencing variable traits is important for understanding how we've adapted to different environments during human evolution, and also understanding why some people are more at risk for certain diseases than others. So when cartoonist Marguerite Debye's assumptions about her ancestry were upended, well, she got drawing, of course, and I'll link to one of her pieces on the Science Friction website, but it also sent her sleuthing. I'm a big nerd, (laughs) and, you know, it made me think, like, okay, so I know for a fact that Palestine, you know, before Israel... You know, it was it was a major seaport and it was bustling and it had, you know, it it was a place to go. And also, you know, hey, Holy Land, you know, a lot of people from Europe went to Palestine specifically because they wanted to check out, see the sites of Jerusalem, etc. And a lot of people did stay. I mean, you know, I've read studies, for example, of groups of Bosnians who went to live in Palestine and within one or two uh, generations, they were pretty much considered Palestinians at that point. I mean, they, they're treated like Palestinians. They're pretty much Palestinians. The only way that you can really tell besides taking a DNA test is that they have a very specific last name. So, you know, I was thinking like, okay, well, maybe that's possible. You know, like maybe we got some Italian ancestor mixed up in there. And it made me think like, maybe it's my grandmother because it can't be my grandfather. He has the Dubai last name, which I know is a Palestinian last name. But then but then I was like, what is her last name? And I actually did find her last name, and it's the most Arab last name in the world. So I'm like, no, that can't be right. So you dug into your family heritage quite deeply. And what did you find? I, I, <laughs> I found that we're a bunch of Arabs. <laughs> I mean, I really didn't... Uh, the, the Italian didn't really make a lot of sense, honestly. But she kept looking because this is what ancestry test results can do to your life, send you down wild rabbit holes in search of answers. I was reading up about how when Sicilians take DNA tests, they will get Arab readings on their DNA. So it was like, well, maybe there's like a Sicilian thing going on or you know, something like that. So... Maybe what they're calling Italian DNA actually, like, eventually became Italian DNA, but actually originated in Africa and the Middle East and spread out eventually into Italy, which is actually a really possible hypothesis. 
And here's the thing, that was in 2016. Two years later, in 2018, out of the blue, 23andMe sends Marguerite an update. So I got a, uh, <laughs> I got an email from 23andMe and they just said, you know, it was a very generic, you know, hey, uh, so we changed, uh, I'm trying to think of the exact wording, something along the lines of, you know, we might have uh, altered some of your results. Go have a look at your, uh, you know, website. This is two years later. and so Two years later. It sounds so cash. And then what happens when you actually go and look at the website and see your results? So, <laughs> so I go on the website, check it out, and all that Italian DNA is down to 3%. Everything else, all the rest of it is, you know, it's it's all Arab DNA, specifically broken down to about 25% Western Asian DNA and 25% North African and Arabian DNA. So they basically retracted all of that Italian DNA and they said, hey, you're actually half Arab after all. Out with the Italian and in back in with the Arab. Pretty much. How did you respond? <laughs> I laughed. They're messing I mean, with I, your mind. <laughs> I seriously, I mean, honestly, like, I spent all that time trying to think of conjecture, trying to figure it out. And it was just like, well, never mind. <laughs> never mind. But given we're talking about identity and family and personal history and parentage, and in the case of the Palestinian diaspora, it's all very political too. This stuff really matters deeply. So... What on earth was going on with 23andMe's ancestry test and its algorithms? Let's ask Joanna Mountain, Senior Director of Research at 23andMe, first about Marguerite's initial result that 50% British Scottish, 35% Italian and 15% North African and Arabian. At that point in time, I would say, you know, we certainly had, didn't have quite the database we have today and we, it was early on in our algorithmic development and the challenge with Italy is, if you think of the history of Italy, it's important to think of the history of Italy and the location of Italy and how much movement there has been between neighboring populations, including from Africa into you know, not just Italy, but into Iberia and so on. So when you have that much exchange and movement between populations, it's very challenging to differentiate between them at the genetic level. So that's what was happening in 2016. I My suspicion is, and we've looked into that, and the results have changed over time as we've improved the algorithms and, and increased the number of reference individuals from those populations. So what accounts then for 23andMe's update of Marguerite's ancestry two years later? Well, that's a very great story for me to hear because that was our goal in making the improvements to our estimates and by um, you know modifying the algorithm and having better reference data and we were able to fine-tune it. And that's the goal. Over time, we want to continue to fine-tune these results and have customers check back in and see you know, what the most strong results are at the present time. The fact that this went in the direction of her understanding is very reassuring for me. It's still a story of probability. Yes, absolutely. And that is something that you know, not everyone is used to thinking about probabilities in terms of their you know, where they come from, it's just a new way of thinking about it. Basically, we provide the results we do and then give people a sense of the confidence we have in those results. And we allow people to actually adjust, you know, there's a little slider where they can adjust and say, I would like the results you're most confident in 
then I want the most speculative results. So we give the customers the power to understand how solid the results are. But should our understanding of something as personal as our ancestry be left to the whim of an evolving set of algorithms? There are several limitations. One is that they can only be as accurate as the databases that they refer to. Geneticist Professor Sarah Tishkoff. So in other words, let's say that somebody of African ancestry wanted to know their ancestry from which part of Africa, let's say, or which ethnic group in Africa. Well, first, you have to have more representation of ethnically diverse populations in Africa in your database for comparison. And secondly, you have to be able to actually distinguish between those ethnic groups. So, for example, we know that due to the history of the slave trade, most of the slaves originated from the western coast of Africa. Mm. And they are from many different ethnic groups. But those ethnic groups at the genetic level, we and others have shown that they're not that different. They're really similar to each other. And it can be very tricky to try to figure out exactly you know, which ethnic group a person is coming from. One of the concerns of, of doing this kind of ancestry research is that identity is highly politicised. And, and certainly in Australia, you know, some of have called for genetic testing of Indigenous people to prove their heritage before, for example, they might receive services. Mm -hmm. So this sort of science is potentially incredibly inflammatory, isn't it? I find it incredibly disturbing, frankly. <laughs> I mean, you know, how people identify has may have nothing to do with your genetics, right? I mean, so you can, how you self-identify is not based on your genes, it should have absolutely nothing to do with your genes. That is my personal opinion. So just looking at the science of that proposition, though, if someone did do a genetic test and found very little evidence of a particular type of heritage, what does that actually tell you? Anything? Not really. I mean, it, it depends on the question that you're trying to address. If it has to do with whether that person has benefits or rights as a member of that community, I personally don't think it should have anything to do with that. Because again, genetics doesn't always match self-identified ethnicity, right, or cultural identity. And also there's the limitation of the databases. So it just depends how far back that uh, cultural connection might be in terms of your ancestors. Yes, As to whether it correct. gets picked up or not in the genetics. That is correct. So when Marguerite Dubai heard from 23andMe that second time, the algorithm seemed to be trying to drill further into her Arabian heritage. But even then, the story felt dissatisfying and incomplete to her. Under Western Asian, they give me a likely match and a, uh, under Lebanon and a possible match under Syria, okay? And then under North African and Arabian, they don't detect any matches for any of the countries they have listed there, which include like Algeria, Bahrain, Egypt, Jordan, all of these countries. They don't detect any of my DNA from these places. Also telling is that Palestine is nowhere on this list. So I'm sitting here like, yeah, I'm sure if you actually have Palestine on this list, you would actually find a close match, but you're not gonna list that, so. There is a bigger problem here though, and that is that the genetic databases being used to determine ancestry estimates are way too white. In fact, all of genetic science has that problem. 
Sarah Tishkoff. And unfortunately, there is a major bias towards data sets that are composed of information from of people of European ancestry compared to other ethnicities around the world. And the consequences of this are serious, right? It can mess up people's ancestry results, as in Marguerite's case, or at least give a partial or evolving story about what they are. But also, Sarah Tishkoff and colleagues just published a sobering analysis of studies investigating genetic associations with disease. 80% of individuals who are included in these genomic studies are of European ancestry. Around 10% are of East Asian ancestry. About 2% are of African ancestry, about 1% are of Hispanic or Latin American ancestry, and less than 1% represent all other ethnicities around the world. And to me, that's just simply unacceptable. Less than 1% all other ethnicities. That's an enormous proportion of the world population. That's right. We are missing out on understanding the majority of variation that exists in the the globe in human populations. So looking at your breakdown of genome-wide association studies and and, uh, according to ethnicity, how well represented, I'm thinking of, of, of the woman I've interviewed of Arabic heritage, her father was Palestinian, how well represented are Middle Eastern populations in, in genetic databases? My understanding is that they're not that well represented. They're not that high. I would say probably less than 1%. And so um, we, do, we need to do a better job of increasing representation from all regions of the world. In other words, we could say that, that genome research, genomic research is, is just too white. That is correct. Yes. So let's say you were interested in ancestry or like I am, you're interested in learning more about human evolutionary history. You're going to miss out on a large part of that history and you won't be able to as accurately determine ancestry if you haven't characterized diversity in global populations. But there are also really important health implications. And I think that by leaving ethnically diverse populations out of human genetic studies, they're not going to benefit from the results of these studies. For example, in people of African ancestry, the focus of Sarah's research, there's a unique gene mutation linked to higher risk of heart failure. And there are countless other examples. One classic example is sickle cell anemia, which is caused by a mutation in the beta globin gene, which is really important for making up hemoglobin and that transports oxygen and so on. And people who have two versions of this mutated gene have sickle cell anemia that has a very serious consequence. About 90% of the people who have sickle cell anemia in Africa will die before age six from the disease. And even in the U.S., for example, where it's very common in people of West African ancestry, it can have devastating consequences. And it's thought that it's common because people who have one copy of the disease mutation and one normal copy are protected from malaria. And malaria causes many millions of deaths in Africa. And there's another example that was identified more recently, a gene called ApoL1, uh, that mutations in this gene are associated with increased risk for kidney disease in people of African ancestry. And kidney disease tends to be very common, actually, in African-Americans. 
it turns out that these mutations are protective against an illness called sleeping sickness that's caused by a parasite common in Africa. So these are two examples where a variant in some conditions can be protective, and in other conditions, it can cause disease. Right, and this points to the evolutionary history of us as a species, really, doesn't it? That we have this Absolutely. variation that's both protective but also confers risk. Absolutely, that's the case. The function of pharmaceutical drugs can also be dramatically affected by certain gene variants too. They might metabolise differently, not work at all, or even be dangerous. And so if people aren't tested for this and you're giving them drugs that can trigger off a hemolytic attack, that can have severe deleterious consequences, including death. A hemolytic so, attack being the death of red blood cells. So disastrous. Exactly. Exactly. And unfortunately, the majority of studies of the effectiveness of drugs has been done in people of European ancestry. And it's not just it's not just between ethnic groups. All of us, all of us as individuals, we all differ in our genome, right? And the ultimate goal is to have more precision medicine or personalized medicine. But first, we have to find those underlying variants and figure out what they do. And then once we do that, ultimately, we could test them. If we knew what all the variants were, if we knew all the genetic variants that are causing deleterious response to drugs, we could then test them in people. And But we need to first identify what they are. <laughs> This is part of why 23andMe launched their African Genetics Project, followed by, in 2018, their Global Genetics Project to try and diversify the reference populations in their database, actively recruiting in 60 underrepresented ancestral groups. But to do that, people have to agree to be part of 23andMe's genetic research studies with various partners. It's such a delicate exercise, though, isn't it, in terms of what cultural groups you and what geographical locations you elect to include or not include? Yeah, it's certainly delicate in multiple ways. For one thing, we would love to include every population, every linguistic group in the world, and we, are, we have ways of trying to do that now. So we aim to include as many groups as possible, but there are delicate issues, for instance, around Native American groups who aren't comfortable being represented in genetic databases in many cases. And so we don't have as much representation of indigenous peoples of, of the U.S. and certainly not of Australia or New Zealand because there's less comfort being part of the databases. Yes, and part of that concern is that there's been a history of scientists taking biological samples from, from different cultural groups throughout history, either without disclosing that they have or not being transparent about how those samples would be used or stored. So people have, in a sense, lost trust in that whole scientific enterprise. Well, I'm glad you used the word trust because that is so critical so I've been involved since the beginning of that in figuring out how we have a process that makes sure that our customers, if they elect to be part of research, we want to ensure that they understand what the any risks and benefits are to them and whether they can withdraw from the research or how they can make choices that feel 
right for them. Sarah Tishkoff is especially experienced at building these relationships with communities around genetic research. It's very important to have collaborators who are equal participants from who are from that community, wherever it is that you're doing research. And so only after they have verified that this is being done in an ethical manner can you even initiate any research. We spend a lot of time interacting with communities and explaining the project and why we're doing it and what are the risks and what are the benefits and are there any benefits? Because sometimes there may not be an immediate direct benefit. We may gain information that might help develop better therapeutics, for example, but those might take many years. And so we're very straightforward about that. Even if they are developed, uh, communities may never have access to them. Yeah, that is one of my biggest concerns, to be perfectly honest. I really, really want to make sure that the communities who contributed to this research are benefiting. The other thing that we do is we go back and we return results. And in the past, and even today, many people are taking samples from communities and they never see them again. They never come back. They don't tell them what they've done with these. And I think that's, personally, I think that's unethical. I think we have to go back. We have to return results. But back to Marguerite Dubai's unexpected results that told her effectively nothing about her Palestinian heritage. Sometimes, as an argument against Palestinians living in the state of Palestine, you know, sometimes you will hear people say, well, they're actually Jordanian. That's that's something that's kind of a common trope. Well, you know, why don't you just go to Jordan? You can just, you're Jordanian anyway, it's fine. I won't get into the ridiculous of that. But besides that, this would kind of be, <laughs> you know, this would kind of be genetic proof that, hey, actually, no, we're not Jordanian. And I mean, I look at my uh, genetic code right here, and this thing is telling me they don't detect any Jordanian DNA, by the way. But they're not actually testing for Palestinian DNA for their reasons. It is a little frustrating. You know, on the one hand, it's like, you know, hey, that would, that would, that would show them. You know, that'd be really great. But on the other hand, like, do I really want to have to prove to people, you know, hey, you know, I have this genetic code. Like, people always find some other reason you know, like, like people will constantly try to find some other way to talk around circles. But either way, for my personal benefit, I do wish that they would just test it because we're here, <laughs> basically. To what extent do ancestry or genetic testing companies have a duty of care here to perhaps only provide ancestry results when they know their databases are diverse enough to improve the certainty of those results? Yeah, that's that's actually a tough question. I, I actually don't even know how to answer that one. I think that's one that you have to ask. You have to ask the companies themselves. Do you feel that you've got a duty of care as a company uh, in terms of deciding what data you choose to include or exclude when you're communicating to someone about their heritage? One of our core values is to keep in mind that behind every data point is a a human being, is a customer, is a real person. And that is something that we've had in mind since the very beginning of the company. Typically, we we would think about our, you know, our mother or grandmother or children who are in the database. And this is someone I care about and I want them to have a good experience as a customer. I guess, though, if, if someone might see themselves as fundamentally connected to one culture, uh, say, Palestinian or Italian, 
and then only to see that identity kind of ripped away from them with a few updates of the 23andMe database, that can have an impact. Yeah, it can have an impact, but typically we find that customers absorb this new information into their general thinking and combine it with the information they already have and put together a a story that might be slightly updated but isn't necessarily completely different from what they had been thinking previously. Sarah Tishkoff. I just think people need to be cautious and be aware that they might find something out that is very hard for them to emotionally or psychologically accept, may contradict their own idea, their own self-identity. We've, of course, heard all these stories about people finding out that a parent is not who they, not actually their biological parent, for example. And then there's the fact that these companies make money by selling this data to typically to pharmaceutical companies and things like that. And it's also not clear how private is this data going to remain in the future. So I just, I, I personally just recommend people go into this with, you know, eyes open, so to speak. I I think that there can be definite positives to this DNA project and also just on a personal level, just learning about yourself in this way. I see it as a possible step toward just being seen, honestly, where it's just like, okay, are you going to acknowledge, like, is this company going to acknowledge that Palestinians actually exist? You know, like if like if you're gonna like again, like it's it's the whole idea of going all the way. Like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna go through the trouble of listing all of these countries and 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 uh, testing DNA for all these places, but you're not gonna test Palestine. Okay, cool. Probably if I sat here and really, uh, really, really, really think about it. I would think about the negative connotations of doing that, but I'm so busy thinking about, like, I want legitimacy, that that's where my focus is. But that's highly fraught, (laughs) especially if their (laughs) data sets are evolving. That's true. I mean, that's actually a good point. Like, maybe maybe I should cool my jets and wait maybe, you know, a few years when they have a more robust data set. And then we'll get there. So interesting, isn't it? My guests, cartoonist and illustrator Marguerite Dubai, Dr Joanna Mountain from 23andMe, Professor Sarah Tishkoff from the University of Pennsylvania, and thanks to co-producer Jane Lee, studio engineer Ari Gross, and the Radio Art Studio in New York. Talk to me on Twitter, won't you? At Natasha Mitchell. See ya. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.